This interview was recorded before the Swiss Federal Council announced it was pulling out of the Institutional Framework Agreement agreed with the European Union. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Paolo Dardanelli, co-editor with Oscar Mazzoleni of Switzerland-EU Relations, Lessons for the UK after Brexit, published in March by Routledge. Between voting to leave the European Union in 2016 and doing it last year, the British spent a long time debating which bilateral model they should adopt after withdrawal. Should it be Norwegian, Canadian, or even, said those who shouldn't know better, Australian? To investigate this question, Routledge have launched a four-book series called Dealing with Europe, edited by John Eric Fossum and Christopher Lord from the University of Oslo. And with the UK now both outside the Union and the broader 30-nation single market, the European Economic Area, or EEA, this series begins with the most tried and tested alternative model, Switzerland. Next year, it'll be 30 years since the Swiss voted by just 50.3% to 49.7% against joining the EEA. This decision was followed by three decades of on-off bilateral negotiations aimed at creating something almost but not quite entirely like the EEA relationship. In this book, Professors Dardanelli and Mazzolini pulled together 10 specialists in Swiss-EU relations to examine the last 30 years, the bilateral agreements that replaced the EEA, the impact on domestic Swiss politics and society, and most of all, the lessons for the UK. Paolo Dardanelli is reader in comparative politics at the University of Kent and has held visiting appointments at Harvard, Cologne, Bern and Madrid. He was educated at the Universities of Turin and Durham and at the London School of Economics. He's the author of Restructuring the European State, European Integration and State Reform in 2017, And before that, the increasingly relevant between two unions, Europeanisation and Scottish Devolution, 2006. Paolo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Can we start with some background to the Dealing with Europe series and the genesis of this book? What what made Fossum and Lord decide to go first with Switzerland? How were you and your fellow editor chosen? And how did you choose your own contributors to to the book? Yeah, um, well, I mean, perhaps I, I should say that um, you know, the, ori- the original idea actually came from us. I mean, we um, this uh, is an issue that, of course, has been uh, has been very prominent in Swiss politics um, over the last few years, and uh, so we approached Routledge um, and we suggested doing a book on this, uh, <clears throat> and Routledge thought that was a good idea. And uh, what uh, was also, uh, you know, it could be broadened to include also other countries like Norway. They they are in a in a close relation with the with the EU, but outside the Union. So uh, I should say, you know, we came first, as it were, and then uh, and then the the series was uh, was um, you know built, um, you know, sort of to to widen the perspective, and. Um, we also did a book um, in uh, published in Switzerland uh, a few years ago um, in Italian, actually, with a, mm-hmm. with a, um, a similar coverage. And uh, um, I mean, of course, you know, from the perspective of uh, you know domestic Swiss politics. And uh, I was also involved years ago in a in a book edited by Clive Church um, on uh, on the same topic that was published in two thousand and six. Right. And are you both Swiss Italians yourselves? 
Well, I'm uh, Oscar is a, is a, a Ticinese, so he's a Swiss Italian. I'm actually Italian and not Swiss. Mm. Right. I, I, I thought so looking at your university background, but I wasn't sure. Um, yes. Well, so, so, someone in the book, I forget who it was, but someone describes the Swiss as belonging to a subset of, of quote, reluctant Europeans. And yes. uh, I mean, the, the similarities with the UK seem to seem to jump out. And, and, and one of the one of the writers, uh, René Schwock, points out that both economies are very open, but at the same time, time have political cultures that are highly protective of national identity and sovereignty. Was that really the underlying reason for uh, for making the, the, the comparison? Um, in a way, in a way, yes. I mean, um, I mean, we we pointed out in the book that if you look at the UK and Switzerland, uh, um, you know, in their relations with the with the European Union, you see a lot of similarities um, over the years. You know, going back to the 1950s, uh, you know, they they refused to take part in the, in the early steps of European integration, and uh, and then followed in. Um, Quite a similar fashion for for uh, about twenty years. Then uh, what what we pointed out was that the UK seems to deviate from this by joining the EU, whereas yeah. Switzerland uh, stayed outside. And uh, now with Brexit, uh, you know they're back they're back together. And uh, and the underlying you know sort of the background situation is uh, is the one that you described, whereby. Um, you know they're very open uh, economies. They they have a tradition of uh, sort of free market support, liberal economies in a way. And uh, uh, but then the political culture is uh, is um, you know very protective of sovereignty for 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 different reasons. Of course, you know in Switzerland there was. Um, there was, there still is, the tradition of uh, of neutrality that played an important role, um, you know, in the early in the early phase, which uh, of course is um, is not the case in the UK. But um, for for different reasons, you know, the, this concern with um, with protecting their autonomy and sovereignty has been has been very prominent, and there's been, mm-hmm. you know, one of the the compass points that has uh, has guided, you know, the policy of the two countries vis-à-vis the EU. Yeah, well, I, I probably like the conversation to follow the, the the pattern of the book or the structure of the book, uh, which I which I presume was uh, structured in such a way that it it well it makes sense. Can I put it that way? Mm-hmm. So if we start with the um, the chapter by uh, Gail Cries about Switzerland, I mean, the, essentially what was Switzerland's twenty sixteen moment, which was Black Sunday on December the sixth, nineteen ninety two, in the background to it. Can you can you give us um, the historical background to to that chapter and and and, and the events of 1992? Yeah. So um, so the long the long sort of long term background is uh, you know the one that I was um, I was referring to earlier. So essentially, um, when uh, when uh, European integration got going in the 1950s, this. Uh, uh, was seen as encroaching on Swiss sovereignty, so Switzerland was uh, um, not interested in in joining. Was also perceived to be incompatible with neutrality. Now, neutrality in Switzerland has been understood um, in different ways over time, but that was the understanding at that time. Um, of course, Switzerland at that time was still outside. Um, the United Nations, so, so it was a very sort of solitary country, um, in a in a way, and uh, so that's the long uh, that's the long term background. Uh, uh, Switzerland, uh, um, together with the UK, set up 
what is now EFTA, what the, the European Free Trade Association, um, in, uh, in the early 60s, precisely as a way of integrating economies um, you know, along, uh, along a path that would not involve political integration of the type pursued by the EU. Um, so that was the long-term background. Then uh, when, uh, when the UK left EFTA to join um, the European communities at the time, um, then obviously that changed completely the, um, the, the framework for Switzerland. And then so Switzerland signed a free trade agreement with the, uh, with the European communities in 1972. Again, as a way of not sort of being isolated economically from uh, from the from the European market, um, and then uh, you know the, the the more immediate background to to 1992 was the acceleration of integration, um, you know, at the end of the 1980s. So you had uh, the single market program. This was launched. The original idea in 85, 86, uh, you had the single European Act signed in 87. So there was this drive to deepen uh, European integration um, with the single market program that also started to attract the interest of countries like Sweden, uh, Austria, Finland, that they were also outside the, um, uh, the European Union uh, and, and Norway. And so Switzerland uh, uh, sort of was facing was facing this acceleration of European integration, and so was facing this challenge of what to do. Or um, you know, obviously, still still highly protective of um, of its sovereignty and uh, concerned about neutrality and so on. At the same time, not of course be willing to suffer economically too much. And um, and so Switzerland took part in the negotiations to create the EEA and uh, and eventually the um, you know the, the establishment in Switzerland, or most of the establishment, was in favour of uh, joining the EEA. And uh, for some, this uh, was, uh, um, you know, was a, so as a stepping stone to joining the EU itself. And uh, we mentioned in the book that actually, in the course of uh, uh, the campaign to ratify the EEA agreement in Switzerland, actually, um, Switzerland. A, Apply to join the EU, and that was a factor, arguably, in um, in you know the outcome in the referendum. But in, in a nutshell, that that's the background. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, one thing I'd forgotten actually was that the I shouldn't really have, but the you know it was at the end of 1992, and it was in the same year where the Danes voted against the Maastricht Treaty, and the French came very close to voting against the Maastricht Treaty. So there was a sort of a there was also a sort of permission structure for for the Swiss to to, to vote against something. Um, do, do you think that was quite influential? It is possible. It is possible. Um, Christ mentions uh, that factor in uh, in his chapter, so it it is possible. Um, mm. We know that there is a you know in political science we call it a demonstration effect, whereby yeah. when you have a series of votes, there is influence from one vote to uh, to the other. So. It is quite possible, um, and uh, uh, and I mean, you know, we we do know that uh, you know at the time also that was also the time of the negotiation of the Maastricht Treaty, you know, the commitment to uh, essentially set up the euro. So there was this acceleration of integration, and um, and it started to sort of I would say raise alarm bells, um, you know, in different quarters. So there was a. a we, we, we witnessed the start of um, 
of a backlash against that. So it's, it, it is entirely possible. I mean, we don't really have a way of, um, of you know, establishing it for sure, mm. but it is quite possible that there was an effect there. Well, he also discusses the voting patterns and and the rise of Christoph Blocher, but um, we'll come back to those because you, you they're more important actually in some of the later chapters. Um, so the next stage, really, that the scene setting is is the chapter by Sergio Rossi and Guillaume Vallée on the um, on the economics and the, the sort of background on what happened next. Um, so they talk about this uh, this situation of sixty years of integration without membership, uh, where Switzerland essentially has no choice but to be deeply integrated, simply due to geographical pr- proximity and mutual independence. Um, again, could you give us some of the some of the background to this to this uh, chapter? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, uh, yeah, I mean, so Switzerland, uh, of course, is um, uh, because of its geography, you know, is uh, is located right in the, in the center of Europe. Has always been uh, highly integrated with the, with the European economy, the wider European economy. Um, uh, this uh, this integration is uh, is particularly important for Switzerland because uh, Switzerland is an exporting country, is a high wage economy, um, so very competitive in certain sectors, highly specialized in certain sectors where it is very competitive. So uh, it relies a lot on these export markets. So that has always been the background. So Switzerland has always been, uh, uh, you know, very very. Um, uh, careful not not to damage um, its economic uh, prospects by by uh, you know being cut off from the European market, and that um, I was mentioning before led to the signing of this uh, um, free trade agreement in 1972, and and then later to to uh, the attempt to join the EA and uh, and then the. Um, you know the development of the bilateral, the bilateral agreement. So, so that's always been the case. Um, on the other hand, uh, um, for example, one uh, there, there are there are sort of two main aspects. Um, one is that uh, Switzerland uh, enjoys this, um, uh, if you want, an, a comparative advantage in terms of the the stability and the predictability of its uh, political system is a, is a very highly stable political system and uh, has been very attractive to investors because of that. And again, Switzerland has been uh, concerned not to sort of to damage that by potentially being dependent politically from decision um, on decision uh, by by the European Union. And this uh, affects, in particular, of course, the the currency. Uh, the Swiss franc is uh, is you know perhaps the most solid currency in the mm. world, and uh, is uh, again is an element of the comparative advantage of Switzerland in economic terms. And uh, and again, the prospect of um, you know having to adopt the euro, replace the franc with the euro is very problematic for Switzerland. Um, mm-hmm. So this is all part of the uh, of the picture and part of this desire to be uh, to have access to the European market, so not to be cut off from the market, but to minimize you know the political sort of fallout of that integration as it were, uh, as much as possible. That, that's the fundamental trade off that the Switzerland mm-hmm. has. Uh, has tried to navigate um, 
you know, but, but since the 1950s, really. Um, what I could say, and this is uh, something also that has, uh, uh, is relevant for the UK, is that um, the integration of the Swiss economy with the wider European economy has, uh, has lessened a little bit over time, um, in the sense that with the, with this, um, the transition from a primarily you know, manufacturing economy with the secondary sector being the dominant sector uh, to a more tertiary-based economy, um, then uh, then Switzerland find it more easy uh, to uh, you know to 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 trade with uh, with Asia, for example, or or with uh, with the US or with the rest of the world, and is less a bit less dependent uh, on the on the European market than it was before. And so, so if you want that need to that, that desperate need to be integrated with the European markets become a little bit less uh, pressing, and um, and the UK has found itself in the in the same situation. We we saw the other day in the news that you know imports from uh, outside. Uh, um, from elsewhere in the world, <clears throat> they overtaken, um, you know, imports from from the EU. So, so that, that that's a general pattern there, and and once again, Switzerland sort of is uh, is mirroring what what is happening in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting though. I mean, so the the economic background really led to this uh, push for this uh, uh, series of bilateral agreements beginning in 1993 to 99. Uh, and focused on key areas like transport, public procurement, agriculture. But interestingly, uh, again, compared to the UK, is the second round of bilateral negotiations, and this is all covered in the chapter by René Schwock, um, focused on uh, the Schengen Agreement and the Dublin Agreement on asylum, which, of course, is, is arguably the main motivator for the UK leaving the or voting to leave the EU in 2016. Mm-hmm. So how how was it that a country that had similar issues with immigration and free movement was so open pretty early on in the discussions, you know, just 10 years in, to, to talking about the Schengen Agreement and, and the Dublin Agreements? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question in a, in a, in a way. I mean... Uh, um, now, now Switzerland, uh, um, you know, so, sort of was a country welcomed a lot of um, of, of immigrants, you know, in uh, in uh, in the fifties and sixties um, and seventies, uh, but be less in the seventies. But they, so they were mainly from uh, from uh, other European countries. So in a way, there was. Um, um, a, a tradition there. Um, I mean, it, it is, I, I guess, it's a little bit uh, difficult to say why exactly um, that was the case. I mean, of course, the, 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 the two dynamics are, are different. Um, so, I mean, we were saying at the beginning that, you know, there are lots of, uh, a lot of similarities between the situation of Switzerland and, and, and the UK. Now, of course, the key difference is that Switzerland, as from a, a situation of being outside, has moved closer and closer to to the EU. Uh, whereas, of course, you know, the UK joined and then and then got out. So, so the, this, so the direction of travel, at least for for a certain period, where were very different. Um, so I guess, I guess that that is one uh, is part of the answer. Um, other other elements there are that um, one is the the 
you know, of course, the, the geographical location of the country. Uh, Switzerland, of course, is, uh, you know, is, is bang in the, uh, in, uh, in the middle of the, is an island really surrounded, entirely surrounded by, by um, EU territory, uh, whereas uh, the UK, of course, never joined um, Schengen, even when it was a member of the of the EU, so that, that in a way that in a, when, when the UK was a member, that that was the paradox in a in a way. The um, the UK was a member of the EU, but was outside Schengen. Switzerland was not a member of the EU, but was inside mm-hmm. Schengen. And I think the geographical location plays a role there, uh, partly also because. Um, because it's not just the geographical location in general, is the fact that you have uh, you know, uh, very important economic centers like uh, Geneva and Basel, um, which are right on the border. Uh, are right on the border and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, they, they economic interland goes into the other country. Uh, you know, if you fly to Basel, the airport is in France. Um, so, so in a way, that, that is... Um, is a difference uh, from from the UK. So so Switzerland uh, is, uh, if you want, has no choice uh, but to be highly integrated there. And uh, and I guess uh, uh, you know a third element is that um, of course when Switzerland was um, negotiating these uh, these uh, agreements with the EU was of course in a weaker position than the than the UK. I mean Switzerland is much smaller, more dependent on the European market and uh, and so on. And uh, and the the EU has always uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, taken the position that the freedom of movement is a quid pro quo for access to the market. You know, the EU has always taken the view that you have four freedoms. You know, one of the freedoms is uh, movement of workers and uh, and so the freedom of goods, you know, has to go or, or services has to go with, uh, with that. And... Um, and so I guess you know, so the combination of these of these uh, of these factors, and I would say, in particular, um, you know, the geographical location of, of the country uh, as you know, perhaps the you know the decisive factor that explained this difference. And of course, I mean, you know, and and then you know, the, the the last thing perhaps is to say that of course, I mean, as you mentioned, in the UK, you know, the sensitivity. Uh, of immigration was a key factor in Brexit, so uh, it would have mm. been uh, it would have been uh, uh, sort of almost unthinkable for for the UK then to negotiate a, a post Brexit agreement that you know would remove um, you know would remove that that sort of control over borders. Mm. Well, I, having said what I said, uh, free movement and immigration essentially became. <laughs> The, the reason that the bilateral agreement approach reached its its sort of limit in in, in twenty fourteen with the um, popular initiative for for a vote on freedom of movement, which then led to a vote against uh, again a very narrow one. There seems to be something in Switzerland about fifty point three percent. It's even narrower than one, the one we had here, and and that essentially led to this final stage of the. Uh, the bilateral negotiations, well, the negotiations where the EU decided it was tired of having these, I think it's 120 agreements now, difficult to manage them, um, and they wanted to integrate it all into a, a an institutional uh, framework agreement, um, which at the same time has become a bigger and bigger problem for, for Swiss politics, which is something that you 
run through in your in your chapter with uh, Blaise Fontanellas. Can, can you talk us through the background to what I just mentioned? Yes. Um, so, um, so as you as you said, you are, um, you know the, the current situation. You have this uh, series of treaties, um, bilateral agreements. I mean, these are obviously. Uh, you know, very complex to manage um, because they they are all uh, the, the legal basis of, of them is all slightly different. Some of them, the first uh, the first set of agreements are tied to each other, so denouncing one agreement you know triggers potentially also the cancellation of the others, whereas the other ones are not. So it's a very complex set of agreements, and uh, and the EU has been uh, not happy with them for for some time. I mean, it, it is probably fair to say the Brexit has, uh, you know, has um, mm-hmm. also alerted the EU to, to uh, you know, to be a bit more um, more uh, uh, sort of watchful of, of what Switzerland does. And uh, so the perception from the EU is that Switzerland has got away, uh, perhaps if not if not with murder, with, with quite a lot, by, mm. by you know, exploiting a little bit this complexity, exploiting the fact that the EU has been quite so understanding that Switzerland, uh, you know, finds itself in a, di- in a difficult situation because of the, the system of direct democracy. You know, there is, um, you know, the, the, the Swiss leaders cannot really commit to a course of action if they if they don't think there is a, a chance that this will be approved by the people, so um, so the, the desire um, on the part of the EU is to to streamline to simplify this agreement, uh, the, the set of agreements, and to replace it with a single agreement would be a framework agreement. So se- setting the fundamental um, rules there and. Um, and that uh, uh, would replace and would uh, uh, would sort of uh, uh, be uh, a, a framework that could go, um, you know, uh, for for the could support the relations in the medium term and long term. Now um, that uh, sounds fine, um, and Switzerland has uh, has accepted, you know, somewhat reluctantly to. To, to engage with that process, and uh, there is a draft agreement um, now on the table. I mean, uh, there are a few problems there, and the one um, one fundamental problem is uh, is that uh, um, you know the 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 EU has always uh, requested that Switzerland adapts uh, its legislation to uh, the evolving. Um, set of law uh, uh, laws of the European Union, and uh, and and sort of would like this to be a, a virtually automatic process. Mm. Now that is problematic for Switzerland because it's perceived to be essentially a surrender of sovereignty, uh, in the sense that the Switzerland would just be there waiting for Brussels to decide and then change its laws. And at the moment, if you want, the situation is not terribly different, but there is this, um, you know, semblance of uh, still a degree of. Uh, of autonomy in deciding, you know, how to transpose legislation and so on. Uh, so that's one element. The other element that has uh, also as a as a partisan sort of dimension is that um, is that uh, that the the freedom of movement uh, for uh, for EU work, workers in Switzerland uh, is not the equivalent of let's say a French worker moving to Germany uh, because the the sort of the welfare entitlements that that person has and uh, you know in terms of salary and so on they are not the same so there is so Switzerland still has a system 
of essentially protecting its workforce from competition from uh, from EU workers. And this again is is you know partly due to, to geography, whereby uh, as I was uh, saying earlier in Geneva or Basel, you can be uh, based in France and be a cross border commuter. And, uh, and work mm-hmm. in Switzerland, and many many people do that. The same goes for Ticino, you know, from from the Milan area, and so on. So, uh, and this is a, a significant problem for Switzerland because the the difference in salaries uh, is huge, uh, and so potentially you have uh, you have this uh, very serious competition from uh, from you workers, um, you know, to to these Swiss workers. So um, the uh, the partisan sort of dimension of that is that in the Swiss sort of party system, uh, the the party on the left, which is called Socialist Party, which would be the equivalent of the Labour Party in the UK, um, in, over the last let's say you know 15, uh, 15, 20 years, has been the most consistent supporter. Of um, of Switzerland's integration in the in the EU, primarily for reasons of you know internationalism and uh, and uh, you know openness uh, openness to uh, to Europe and the world. Um, mm. But at the same time, of course, this is a party that. Um, Wants to protect the interest of the of the working class and uh, and the the framework agreement as it stands poses a challenge for the party. So the party signaled that does not intend to recommend ratification of that agreement, uh, which implies that there is virtually no chance that if the agreement is put to a referendum, there is virtually no chance that it will be approved. So the fact that so the paradox is that you know this. Um, Closing the agreement has uh, created a, a, a de facto, if you want, alliance between the left and the right uh, for different reasons, but against the agreement, uh, you know, depriving it of uh, sufficient support uh, among the electorate. It, it's interesting, though, because I, I saw a poll last week that showed that um, uh, if the IFA were put to the Swiss people, apparently they claim that they would vote 64% to 32% in favour of it. And and then, of course, we had the experience of the, the sort of second second thoughts uh, referendum last year on, on um, freedom of movement. Do, do you th- well, A, do you believe that poll? And, and B, do you think that there, there is a sort of change of sentiment going on in Switzerland? Um, I, 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 w- I would say, um, you know, that, that seems to me optimistic um, mm. in the sense that, um, you know, traditionally in Switzerland, so to the indication given by the political parties um, is, uh, uh, is, is important. Um, so um, in the current situation, it seems to me difficult that that would, uh, would be the result in a, in a referendum. I mean, the, the, the other, um, the, the sort of the other aspect to, to bear in mind, but we don't know to what extent that, uh, you know, can, can, can play out in a, in a vote is that uh, what is clear is that in Switzerland, the, um, you know, people are, or, or the majority of the people is supportive of um, of keeping links with the with the EU, they don't. Uh, you know, they if the choice is down to uh, you know uh, keeping uh, complete complete control of um, 
of uh, of uh, sovereignty and uh, and you know sort of breaking relations with the with the EU. That is not what people. That that's something that you know the 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 the, uh, the right wing party the um, the Swiss People's Party would be prepared to do, but it, mm. this is not what the majority of the people would be prepared to do. But um, um, I mean, on on the current uh, you know political uh, sort of uh, you know uh, landscape, I I would uh, I would find it very um, difficult to imagine you know a vote of that that sort of um, that sort of magnitude in favour. Yeah. Well, actually, on the voting side, um, to me, the most interesting things would, I mean, you've got four chapters, one by Pascal Sharini, one by Sean Muller, Tobias Tyler, and uh, Oscar Mazzolini, all, all looking at the the breakdown of the voting and the similarities with the breakdown of voting in the, in the UK. So the, the, the more pro-European areas tend to be the Francophone areas, the large cities, even if they were German-speaking, um, edu- a higher education level. And what really struck me was was that one of the most Eurosceptic areas is uh, is Ticino, is the uh, um, uh, Italian-speaking canton in, in, in the south. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, can you talk us through that? It's, it's very interesting similarities and also differences with, with the situation in the UK. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, what what we have found is that this, um, uh, I mean, in terms of the difference between the French-speaking areas, the German-speaking areas, um, that has been uh, has been um, you know quite quite consistent over time. Uh, so, to the gap as it was a very sharp gap uh, at the time of the nineteen ninety two vote. The the gap is a little bit less sharp now, but there is a consistent uh, difference in terms of the French-speaking area being more pro. Um, there is an interesting question of why that should be the case. And, uh, you know, the, some of the chapters uh, touch upon it, that there is, a, you know, if you want a cultural uh, dimension to it, one element of that is that, you know, French-speaking Swiss, they tend to... Um, Quite like France, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so today, so today get on well with France. Although they, you know, I mean, we need to be um, clear that they don't, you know, they they are not, uh, they are not, you know, identifying with France. They're very proud to be Swiss, but they there is, if you want, a positive attitude to France. Um, and there is a close um, cultural integration um, in the sense that, for example, you know, French-speaking Swiss they they speak um, you know, virtually standard French and so on. Uh, the situation is different in German-speaking Switzerland. There is a, a fear, I would say, of Germany. Uh, for example, German immigrants they tend to not to be welcome. Um, and uh, again, the, why that should be so, you know, sort of uh, um, Tyler. In the book, argues that partly is linguistic because there is a strong attachment to the dialect in Switzerland, uh, um, which is very different from standard German. But then the written language is standard German, and so on. So there, there, there is a is an interesting area to 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 explore. But certainly that is a, is a, is very clear in terms of the linguistic factor. The other factor that is very 
similar to the UK, is the urban versus rural pattern, with the urban areas being in favor of rural areas against, and the, the education factor. So that's very clear. Ticino is an interesting one because uh, uh, it wasn't uh, particularly Eurosceptical in the past, uh, but it's become more so over time. I think there, the, the, the key factor, as Mazzolini shows, is that is proximity with Italy. And um, I mean, Ticino is a periphery within Switzerland, is the only canton uh, which is Italian uh, speaking, is uh, to the south of the Alps, so it's a little bit sort of isolated from the from the rest of Switzerland, uh, doesn't have big cities, um, and is very close to uh, you know the dominant economic area of Italy, which is the the Milan. The Milan area, and uh, and also Italy, uh, of course, is a country with uh, significant economic problems. For example, high unemployment. So the pressure um, from uh, from uh, uh, you know Italian, for example, cross border commuters, you know, on the Ticino uh, labor market is is very very severe, and that mm. um, arguably is the you know the key factor that has made Ticino more and more eurosceptic, and this has been exploited by a party. Uh, a regional party that uh, was set up around the time of um, of the EEA vote, and uh, and and the party that has exploited this uh, this fear uh, of uh, of Europe, but which also in the in Ticino is primarily a fear of of, of Italy. Um, so so you have these factors, you know, playing playing a role. I was mentioning earlier, by the way, that you know Geneva and Basel they're very close to the border, but they because they are uh, important economic center. They sort of dominate, you know, the relative, um, uh, you know, the surrounding areas in, uh, in mm. let's say, France and Germany. Uh, whereas in Ticino, is the opposite. Is the dominance of Milan, you know, vis-a-vis, mm. vis-a-vis Ticino. Uh, so, so that partly also explains the difference between, let's say, Basel and Geneva on one, on the one hand, and uh, and Ticino on the other. Um, uh, we mentioned briefly in the book that an interesting difference. So, so these are all sort of broadly speaking uh, uh, similarities. You have some similarities in the UK, of course, with the difference, you know, in Scotland and Northern Ireland, mm. in the attitude to the EU, um, you know, vis-a-vis vis-a-vis uh, uh, London. So you have this triangulation, as it were, for example, in Scotland, whereby the attitude to the EU, they are governed to an extent by the attitudes to London. And we have seen that obviously playing playing out very, very significantly uh, also, uh, you know, as we speak. And I was saying, uh, you know, the key, a key uh, difference that... Um, we, we haven't explored too much um, in the book because it doesn't come out very clearly in, um, you know, in the analysis over time, but there is some indication that is present, is the, the effect of age, whereby in the UK uh, it's very clearly that there is a, a, you know, an age effect whereby younger people are much more pro-EU than older people. And there is some indication that in Switzerland it's actually the other way around, um, which is interesting. We don't really... Um, no, understand why that should be the case, um, and uh, it would be interesting then, of course, you know, in uh, in the long term to see how, how that plays out. Mm. Well, another contrast is something you pick out in your chapter on um, state structures, where you say that European Europeanization has tended to feed a sort of centralization. Um, 
process in Switzerland, but that the cantons have protected their powers to extend or pushed back. And then you say, uh, quote, Brexit raises challenges primarily of a disintegrative kind. The policy response called for is nonetheless similar, hence Switzerland still holds valuable insights for the UK. Can you explain what those insights would be? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, as you as you hinted at, uh, in in Switzerland, the uh, the attempt to so to deal with this uh, with the centralizing effect of uh, of uh, uh, European integration has been to us to say the the cantons more closely to uh, to foreign policy and European policy in particular. So traditionally, uh, of course, under a classic federal system, foreign policy was exclusively a federal competence, so the cantons were not involved. And the challenge, this uh, centralization challenge, emerged precisely because uh, uh, European integration, of course, you know, covers so many areas that domestically are a cantonal competence. But then the cantons said, no, didn't have a say in, uh, in, uh, in European policy. So the, the, the answer has been to there was a constitutional change, there was a law passed, and then there has been a mechanism put in place whereby the cantons are much more closely associated um, with the with the federal government in formulating uh, the uh, uh, the foreign policy, the, the European policy of the country, and uh, they can have observers, for example, in Brussels, and and so on. So th- there has been a, a, a real effort to uh, you know to integrate the cantons into the decision making process, and and arguably that is a lesson for the UK because we have seen also in terms of you know when um, when the UK repatriated. Some of the powers of uh, you know state aid and so on. There was an uproar in uh, in Scotland and uh, and Wales because that was perceived as a power grab by London. So arguably, and we have seen also the situation in Northern Ireland, where Northern Ireland, you know, the protocol has uh, um, you know achieved the the rare feat of you know um, sort of angering both communities for different reasons. Mm. So uh, in a way, the lesson there is that a much more uh, a much closer integration of um, of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland in uh, in formulating what the UK policy vis-a-vis Europe should be it, it is important um, you know precisely in terms of uh, managing you know the the problems that um, you know withdrawing from the US created and uh, and you know the lesson from Switzerland uh, that we can see is that this you know to I mean it doesn't you know it's not a, a perfect uh, solution it doesn't address all the problems but it goes a significant way uh, you know towards addressing them hmm. Well, uh, just a, a final substantive question, which is on the um, <clears throat> the period coming up. So we there's a Swiss election in 23, British election in 23 or 24, and then a t- big turnover of the European institutions in, in, in 24. Do, do you think there's an opportunity for doing something more global that could incorporate both states? So, you know, democratizing the EEA and trying to bring in both countries as part of a bigger effort to create a sort of two-speed European space, or is that is that too ambitious in your view? Um, I well, my my sort of gut reaction is to say yes. That that 
sounds too ambitious, to be honest. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, this has been, you know, these ideas of multiple speed and, uh, you know, sort of concentric circles that have been uh, discussed for for a number of years. They haven't come to much, really. Um, and uh, I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't see that changing, um, you know, in um, in the in the in the foreseeable future. Um, I mean, partly, partly also because, um, you know, I mean, if you take a country like Switzerland, uh, um, elections don't really make a fundamental change because, uh, uh, you know, all uh, all federal executives they are, uh, you know, multi parties. So there is a, there is a high degree of continuity there. Uh, the concerns that Switzerland has at the moment, for example, vis-a-vis this framework agreement, they're not likely to go away. I mean, the UK, of course, we don't know, but I mean, uh, you know, the chances of Labour winning the next election, I think they are at the moment, from what we can see, not very high. So um, I would say, you know, really, sort of the stars don't seem to be aligned at the moment to indicate, you know, the likelihood of that sort of scenario materialising. Well, uh, finally, as usual, I've asked my guests to recommend two books, uh, often but not always, uh, something broadly in their field and one personal choice. So, uh, Paolo, what have you gone for? Okay, so um, uh, I, I, I was uh, mentioning earlier that it depends how the, the field is defined. I mean, if we say the field in terms of, you know, the study of politics and, uh, and history more broadly. So the first one I would say is uh, a book called How uh, Democracies Die, uh, which is not a very cheerful title, of course. So apologies for those who prefer to read uh, lighter stuff. But it's an interesting book. It is... Um, a book by uh, Levitsky and uh, Ziblatt, the two American political scientists, essentially is about democratic erosion in Western countries. Uh, you know, focused particularly on the US, you know, that was triggered by the Trump election. But we have seen also, you know, the, the aftermath of, uh, of uh, uh, the election in the, in the US. And we have seen also, you know, there, is, uh, uh, there are some warning signs in the UK as well. We have seen, uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, situation in, uh, in places like India, uh, in places like Hungary and so on. So there are, I would say, you know, worries about, um, you know, this erosion of democracy in, uh, in many places in the world, uh, even in places like, you know, the US, that, like like to think of itself as the, uh, you know, as the cradle of democracy. Uh, so that's the first one, a bit more in, uh, in my field I would recommend. It's a, quite a short book, so easy to read, uh, quick, quick to read, but um, I, I would recommend it. Uh, the other book uh, takes a much more um, sort of longer-term frame and is not strictly in my field because it's a book of history. It's uh, written by... by um, uh, Norman Davis, prominent historian, uh, called Vanished Kingdoms. And uh, the, the title is a little bit misleading because it covers different parts of the world that they are not, strictly speaking, kingdoms. And he once explained that the, he, gave, he gave kingdoms, uh, uh, you know, he put kingdoms in the title because his publisher said, well, that sounds better. So, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sell better. And this is essentially, as, uh, as the title um, sort of hints at, Insight is a book that looks at political systems that existed 
in the past and then disappeared. So they're no longer there. You know, we we tend to sort of look back to history from uh, today's standpoint. And so we take for granted that the system that exists now, you know, existed in the past. But there were many systems in the past that then uh, disappeared um, you know, in the course of uh, in the course of time, and so that is a reminder. If you want, again, perhaps not the most cheerful, but um, is is written very well, very very lively, and uh, and is a reminder of you know how temporary political systems are, and uh, and they are not they are not sort of destined to last forever. Right. Well, thank you for your choices uh, today. I've been talking to Paolo Dardanelli about Switzerland EU relations. Lessons for the UK after Brexit, published in March by Routledge. Paolo, thanks again for coming on. Thank you very much, Tim.